millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burden contains depictions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. On August 12th, 1991, Billie Jean Letterman was at home with her husband, Michael, who had abused her throughout their marriage. The couple argued that night, like they did so many nights before. But that night was different, because this time, Billy wouldn't make it out alive. She was shot in the head and died the next day. Law enforcement has always suspected that Michael was responsible for Billy's death. In the last episode, we heard from lead investigator Sergeant Don Nix, who viewed the case as a homicide but said there just wasn't enough evidence to prosecute Michael. In his call with Billy's daughter Ashley in 2014, Nix was sympathetic. Nix told her there might be a case if she could just get the Leverett girl to come forward. But what Nix had forgotten is that she already did. For a case that was barely investigated, officers still had trouble keeping track of what little they had. Ten days after Billie Jean died, a woman walked into the Miller County Sheriff's Office to talk to Sergeant Nix. Her name was Gay Leverett, or as Nix had referred to her, the Leverett girl. She was Michael's first wife, before Billy. Michael and Gay had a daughter together, Crystal. And Crystal would regularly spend weekends with Billy, Ashley, and Michael. After hearing about Billy's death, Gay was worried. To understand why, let's listen to the conversation between Gay Leverett and Sergeant Nix, as read by voice actors. Tell me, you said one time you had a fight. I understand that you probably don't remember what the circumstances leading up to the fight, but the fight progressed till it got pretty out of hand from what you're describing to me. Can you tell me just what happened? Well, Michael stuck a gun to my head and more or less asked me if I wanted to live or die. At the time, my reply was that I didn't really care. He could do whatever he wanted. And Michael backed off. He said that more or less, him killing me was not worth going to jail or prison. Gay said that it was one of Michael's hunting rifles. You say he put it up against your head? Did he point the muzzle of it, the end of the barrel? No, sir. He put it on my forehead. He placed it against your forehead? Yes, sir. Was the gun loaded? I didn't know. 
I believe that he took the shells out after that. But at the time, I didn't know. Nix asked about Michael's temper. Gay said he'd go off about anything. He slapped her around, busted her lip, bruised her arms. He just used to go out at night, and he came home one night. He heard something, but he woke me up choking me. What, with his hands? Yes, sir, right around my neck. Okay, you say he was choking you. Was he, I mean, cutting your ear off? Yes, sir. Did you fear for your life? He completely calmed down, but when he got mad, yes, sir, I did. Gay also told Nix that there was one night that she and her mom called the police on Michael. She said that Michael got in his truck that night with a gun, headed for her mom's house. They didn't know if he was planning to shoot her or what he was doing. Gay said that when the deputy came out to her mom's house, Michael just accused him of being there just to try to take Gay out on a date. Gay couldn't remember what she and Michael had been fighting about on the night that Michael held a rifle to her head. Can you remember whether it was something pretty major or pretty minor or... Minor. Anything. When I was in school, if I said hi to somebody in the hall, he'd get mad. Gay and Michael got married when Gay was a senior in high school. Michael was also 18, but he dropped out of school several years ago. Gay knew Sergeant Nix from a place she used to work, and she called him after Billy died. She told him that she had spoken with Billy that Sunday, the day before she was shot. Because her daughter Crystal spent weekends with Billy and Michael... Gay would make arrangements with Billy for picking Crystal up from school on Fridays. And as far as I knew, everything was fine. She was going to pick up. I was going to call her like Thursday night and tell her where we needed to go and what room Crystal was in and all that. Gay told Nix she was worried about her daughter being in a violent environment. He asked if she'd spoken to her lawyer, and she had. And what'd he tell you? Be careful. Gay didn't want to talk to us for this podcast, but we're glad she got away. I'm Karen Trico Stewart. From Power of Pod Productions, this is episode four of Burden The Investigation, part two. In this episode, we're going to focus on reports by the hospital and crime lab. We're not going to discuss Billy's autopsy yet. We'll save that for an upcoming episode called Billy's Body. We heard from the paramedics Danny Jewell and Norma King in episode one. Although Danny told us that he never thought that Billy killed herself, he did write that the wound was self-inflicted in his report. His report stated that Billy was found lying on the floor with a gunshot wound on the right side of her head, just behind the ear. Billy's pupils were unequal and unreactive. The paramedics attempted to intubate her, but as they tried to get the tube down her throat to try to get her air, they realized that they couldn't because her mouth was clamped shut. When they got Billy to the hospital, the doctors and nurses took over. One doctor wrote that the initial report was that the wound was self-inflicted with a 22. The report notes that Billy had been arguing with her husband, according to the husband's father. That would be Michael's dad, Red Letterman. Here's my co-host, Stephanie Harris. The following is taken directly from the nurse's notes, but edited for clarity. On initial intake, patient had bruises to the left side of her neck, just under the jaw, and around to back of neck. They are blue and purple. Patient has soaked completely through the dressing on her head. Her lungs have coarse crackles scattered throughout both lungs. Only a scant amount of thick, yellowish-brown mucus obtained by suctioning lungs. 1 a.m., Patient's sister, brother-in-law, and mother are at her bedside. Also a friend of the mother. Questions are answered. 1.10 a.m. 
patient condition unchanged. Blood pressure 109 over 77, pulse 61, respiration rate 14. 1.55 a.m. Dr. Wade from the ER up to unit to talk with family and check patient condition. 2 a.m. Patient still unresponsive to verbal or painful stimuli. Bandage to right side of head behind ear completely saturated with bright red blood. New dressings applied to back of head where blood is dripping from the bandages. 2.40 a.m. Heart rate 76. Respiration rate 14. Patient continues to have elevated heartbeat with frequent contractions. Bleeding copious amounts of bright red blood from nose and mouth. Mother and friend at bedside. 2.55 a.m. Blood pressure 150 over 107. Pulse 116. Respiration rate 14. Bloody urine in Foley catheter. Continue to suction bright red blood from nose and mouth. Dressing in place on right side of head. Pupils dilated with no response to light. Oral airway in place due to patient clamping down. Small amount of bloody secretions suctioned from mouth and also from lungs. Chest clear. Bowel sounds heard. Both hands in white paper bags. IV in right forearm. Soft restraints in place. No posturing or seizure activity noted. Zero response to painful stimulation. 3.15 a.m. Condition is the same. Blood pressure 95 over 70. Pulse 127. Respiration rate 14. Catheter only receiving bright red blood, no urine. Dressing on her head reinforced with gauze, bandages, and ace wrap. The towels rolled under her head are completely saturated with bright red blood. 3.35 a.m. Blood pressure 54. Pulse 164. Respiration rate 14. Continuing to suction copious amount of bright red blood from the mouth and nose. Blood oozing out of nose and mouth. Breath sounds coarse, crackles throughout upper and lower lobes. Patient having what appears to be pure blood from Foley catheter. Ventilator settings remain the same. 4 a.m. Blood pressure 56, pulse 165, elevated heart rate. Vent settings remain the same. Bleeding from nose and mouth have subsided. Continue to have bright red blood drainage on dressing to head. Patient has had no verbal response since admission. 5.45 a.m. Only a small amount of bright red blood removed from mouth suction. Breath sounds clear and equal at this time. Moderate amount of thick, bright red blood from lung suction. Patient has no gag reflex. Heart rate elevated. 6 a.m. Mother at bedside. Condition unchanged. Still on ventilator. Breath sounds equal and clear in lungs. Patient is unresponsive to verbal or painful stimuli. Pupils have no reaction. Patient arms are stiff with hands and wrists curled to chest. Dressing to head intact with bright red blood soaking through back of head. Bright red blood coming from nose. Foley catheter draining light yellow urine. IV and inside right arm has no redness or edema. Wrists are restrained. Paper sacks over hands at request of police department. 9.15 a.m. Blood pressure very low at 30. 9.45 a.m. Mother at bedside. Condition of patient explained to her. 10.10 a.m. Visitors at bedside. Condition report given to them. 10.30 a.m. Doctor here to examine CAT scan. 
Dressing taken off of head and wound assessed. Patient taken off vent for four minutes. 100% oxygen provided via endotracheal tube. Patient took no breaths during this time. Endotracheal tube untaped by respiratory staff. 10.45 a.m. Patient pronounced now by the doctor. Family at bedside. Mother of patient requests that ventilator be discontinued. 11.40. Vent discontinued at this time. 11.55. Patient flatline now. Miller County Coroner notified of death. Husband signed release of record and body to funeral home. Endotracheal tube, Foley catheter, and IV line removed. Patient not bathed. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We have a one-page coroner's report by Eddie Hawkins. His report states that Billy's husband said they'd been arguing, and he threw the gun on the floor and told her if she wanted him dead to shoot him. Quote, He said she picked up the gun and he took off. He heard the gunshot and looked and saw her lying on the floor. End quote. We don't know who told him this story. It was likely Sergeant Don Nix, but we can't be sure. This version of the shooting is not at all what Michael said in his statement. Is this what he first told Nix at the hospital or at the sheriff's office before the tape recorder started? In the transcript of his interview, he really does not commit to exactly what happened, but he described attempting to reach the gun and it went off. He doesn't really say that he touched the gun, but he definitely did not say that he heard the shot, turned around, and saw Billy lying on the floor. Billy's body was transported to the crime lab in Little Rock the day after she was taken off life support and died. The person who took her body wrote in his report that Michael identified Billy's body. Her hands were bagged. He also had her medical records, x-rays, and blood in an icebox. He noted that Billy's jaw had been broken in the past and that the husband had a history of beating the subject. The gun belongs to a friend of the husband. They didn't know if she was right or left-handed. Evidence submitted to the crime lab included, of course, Billy's body, hospital records and blood sample, the coroner's report, Sheriff's report, Billy's clothing. She had been wearing a bra and panties, lavender-colored shorts, and a white tank top. The evidence form says that the clothes were to be returned to Miller County. It also says no analysis was required for the clothes. An XCAM 22 mag revolver and five live rounds. 
On his evidence submission to the crime lab, Miller County Deputy Greg Castile wrote homicide for type of incident. His summary was, quote, Victim was involved in argument with her husband, and during the fight, weapon discharged, striking victim in the head. End quote. The crime lab also noted that with the body was a gold-colored ring with five tiny clear stones. The medical examiner at the time was Fahmy Malik. He was the subject of much negative press in Arkansas due to some questionable conclusions. During the upcoming episode, called Billy's Body, we'll discuss at length two different opinions about how the bullet entered Billy's head. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about Dr. Malik, the True Crime Garage podcast has a four-part story about an Arkansas famous case known as The Boys on the Tracks. Nick and the captain go into detail about some of Dr. Malik's cases. But for this episode, here's a brief description of what the medical examiner determined in Billy's case. We'll post some images on social media to help you visualize the bullet trajectory. Patreon subscribers have access to the complete files. Billy's nude body was received at 10 o'clock on the morning after she was pronounced dead. She was 5'2 and weighed 105 pounds. Her ears were pierced, the right one twice. She had great fragments in her stomach. Billy had needle marks on the inside of the right elbow and forearm from the medical procedures. There was this idea that gun residue wasn't present on her hands because she'd been prepped for surgery, but there's no record of that. According to Dr. Malik, the bullet entered Billy's head right above her ear, three inches below the top of her head, and six and a half inches from the center of the back of her skull. The bullet traveled in a left and forward direction, ending up in the left frontal lobe of her brain. So imagine a line from behind your right ear toward your left eye. Dr. Malik removed a small caliber, jacketed, distorted bullet. Jacketed just means the hard outer shell of the bullet. Malik scratched Billy's initials on the bottom of the bullet for identification. That is common practice. The wound was about a quarter inch and was surrounded by a bruise. There was stippling in front of the wound. There was also stippling on Billy's upper earlobe. Stippling is basically marks made by gunpowder. The trace evidence examiner was charged with determining the distance between the gun and Billy's head. Malik reported that the manner of Billy's death would be undetermined until the trace evidence analysis and the investigation were completed. In hindsight, we know the cops were waiting for the medical examiner to tell them if they were working on a homicide, and the medical examiner was waiting for information from the investigation before he would certify a manner of death. The crime lab did submit a trace evidence report on November 14, 1991, so this was three months after Billy was shot. They determined that the spent bullet was from the gun found at the scene. The revolver was a blue 22 caliber X-cam, model TA-76. The barrel was four and three-quarters inches long. They test-fired the gun and determined that the muzzle-to-target distance was between six and 12 inches. Based on the records, it appears that this was determined by firing the gun from different angles, and it was noted when the entry point looked similar to the wound entry. So if Billy had shot herself, the end of the gun would have been between 6 and 12 inches from her head. I cannot talk about this without actually holding a finger gun to my own head to see if it makes sense. It doesn't, especially if what Dr. Malik wrote is true, that the bullet went in from the back right toward the left front of her brain. I'm sure it's possible, but is it probable? We can't tell from the records if the evidence was sent back to Miller County. There are copies of UPS and other delivery receipts, but there's no indication of what was delivered or received. So what did Dr. Fahmy Malik determine as manner of death? He first signed Billy's death certificate on August 22nd, marking it pending investigation. The health department requested an update on the manner of death on September 4th. 
On October 9th, someone from Dr. Malik's staff asked in a note what they should put for manner of death. The next day, he crossed out pending investigation and checked the box for could not be determined. We talked about this in the last episode, but it bears repeating. Presumably, Sergeant Don Nix had all of this information since he wrote about it in his report dated November 20th, and Dr. Malik signed off on the death certificate with the manner being undetermined. So what exactly was Nix talking about when he said he never got the reports from the medical examiner? The Miller County Sheriff at the time of Billy's death was H.L. Phillips. He wasn't an investigator on the case, but he did review it after receiving information that Billy's death may have been a homicide. On August 8, 1996, Phillips wrote to the crime lab to ask if they would reopen the investigation. He wrote, In particular, I would like a precise, detailed investigation to determine the distance between the muzzle and the head wound. Also, if the victim could have held the gun in her right hand at the distance and angle indicated by the wound and fired the weapon. I have received information from several sources stating that this was a homicide. After reviewing our case file, I believe it should be reinvestigated. So at the crime lab, weapons expert Gary Lawrence once again test-fired a gun and again determined that the muzzle would have been between 6 and 12 inches from Billy's head. We have no additional records about what Sheriff Phillips did with this information after he received it. He retired in 2006, but he did talk to us in 2018. In a phone call with Stephanie, he discussed what he could remember about the case. You had said that you'd, you'd received, in the letter you sent to them, you said that you'd received information that, that led you to believe it may be a homicide. Do you yeah. remember what prompted you to, to do that? Uh, the, the only thing was uh, the uh, initial investigation, it was difficult to determine what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the crime lab had questions about it. They could not determine it, the actual cause of it. Later on, uh, I had some informants uh, in the street, one or two informants, that told me that they had heard that it was a homicide. I, in turn, uh, now I'm talking off the top of my head, okay? Sure. I, I believe that the daughter or someone there uh, I, uh, had someone to talk to about it, whatever, and I think from that conversation, <clears throat> it gave me further uh uh, indication that it could have been a homicide, mm-hmm. but since the uh, drug lab, I mean drug lab, the, the lab could not make a complete determination as whether it was or was not, and we really mm-hmm. was kind of at a loss as to, as to how to pursue with it. We left the case, we might say, in, a, in an open fact division whenever I retired, I left that case file there yeah. for someone to continue to follow up on it. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it was, you know, we, we cannot file charges. Uh, it has to be done through the prosecutor. Sure. And, uh, and, uh, and the prosecutor had the same information as I had, which they in turn, it just was left open, hoping that as time goes by, we might be able to develop something a little bit further. That particular file, uh, like I said, there was two files. There was a working file, and then what I refer to as my file that I left because I had so much additional information in it uh, when I retired than what the initial, uh, you know, and I, you know, and, and with Don, Don had been a lot of, lot of questions about it. He was not satisfied mm-hmm. with, you know, he had a lot of questions as, as uh, at being, in his opinion, homicide. Everybody says, everybody looks at it, 
will say homicide, but without the evidence, without any cooperation anywhere whatsoever, uh, there's no no way you go with it. Right. Yeah, it's such a tough case. And at the time, no one knew that Ashley saw what happened. That's true. What thirty three now and and of course she says she remembers everything but it, but she didn't tell anyone until a few years later and I think she told her yeah they, you know there was nothing ever said about it mm-hmm. until my gosh right before I retired which we'll say two thousand six or two thousand five mm-hmm. is whenever I think she first uh, has said something about it <clears throat> yeah well the, the, what's so infuriating about it is that Michael I mean I've got a list of women who are telling me about how he beat them. And he has never been arrested for anything because no one's ever called the cops on him. <laughs> and so it's, it's like, you know, I know how yeah. he treats women, and that's what makes me so mad about yeah, it. Well, not, see, did, not at the police. At, at that general. time, we did. At that time, <clears throat> what you're telling me is, 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 is something new. We have no, no information of that. Well, there's, there's a note in the police report uh, about, or in the medical reports about her having had her jaw broken. Yeah, and Gay, but, Gay Leverett also gave a statement that said that he had abused her. I know, abused, yes. But as far as, as the other night, here, I may be telling you something wrong. I may know all about that, but I don't recall it. But yeah. we, the information was that he was very abusive in many different ways. He was abusive. No reports. She never complained. Uh, nothing was ever done about anything because, mm-hmm. like I say, it was just uh, uh, kind of a stalemate thing. I wondered if they ever found the file, do you know? Not that I know of. Well, this is definitely left there open for them. Well, I've done another uh, FOIA request, so we'll see what Sheriff Runyon comes back with. But but um, he, in one letter, in one response, he said that they didn't know where anything was. It was in storage, and it was going to take, you know, hours to find it. And it seems well, like you all keep records because there's a chain of custody. Well, see, what what happened, uh, uh, what, what we consider to be a, a active files, we have them. Uh, all the evidence at the uh, the old courthouse. Mm-hmm. We then built a new jail with new evidence locker and all that. So another case came up after I retired, and I went over to make an inquiry as to where all the evidence was. I found that all of it had been moved out by the sheriff that followed me. And so we lost a lot of evidence there. But in that particular case, that I was trying to find, follow up on so I, I don't know what happened. I don't know what they may have done with it. I, I really don't. But I know that, um, I don't know, like I say, another yeah, sheriff yeah. came in after me. The whole thing changed. Uh, I know that they moved all the, the evidence that, that we kept as active, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in a certain area, and it was all gone. So uh, this, mm-hmm. was, this was after I left and another sheriff came in. And also told me that, that file was there unless Unless that sheriff that I left it with may have disposed of it, so I, I don't know. I hope not. Yeah, I've, I've uh, asked for the working file for sure, um, but we'll see what they come back with. Yeah, uh, and they could they consider a, a woman who was helping me for a little bit, and she had spoken with someone. And I'm sorry, I just I can't bring up his name, but but he said that they it's a closed case. So um, a case a case is never closed. So it seems that not only has Miller County lost records and evidence for Billy's case, but other homicide investigations in that county as well. Sheriff Phillips was very kind and forthcoming in the conversation. He seemed to really want to help. 
He also put a lot of faith in Sheriff Runyon helping us, too. But from our perspective, his enthusiasm for the current sheriff was misplaced. Sheriff Jackie Runyon has never responded to phone messages. We submitted freedom of information requests for all information and incident reports on Michael Letterman, but received no response. We also asked for files on Billy's case. In a letter he signed in March of 2018, we were advised that because the information we sought was in storage and not in their evidence record system, it was not, quote, easily located with reasonable effort. He even said that he would have to hire additional personnel to find the records. He went on to estimate that it would take five working days to get the information, maybe even more. Two part-time employees working on the task would cost $20 an hour. All of this, plus duplication fees and other associated costs, would cost a total of $1,800. That's $1,800 so they could find their own files. He also required the fee in advance to proceed with appropriate disbursement for services and fee arrangements as specified in Arkansas's Freedom of Information Statute. The Arkansas Freedom of Information Act governs access to public records, among other public information. Sheriff Runyon uses the act to assess an $1,800 fee on our request for Billy's records. He is wrong. First, nowhere in FOIA does it say the records must be, quote, easily located with reasonable effort, end quote. Next, I don't have to pay for him to hire extra staff to find his own records. What he uses as authority for that charge does not apply to our request. The code section he used applies to special requests for electronic information. We didn't make a request for electronic information. Valid costs are the actual costs of reproduction. Quoting the statute, that includes the costs of the medium of reproduction, supplies, equipment, and maintenance, but not including existing agency personnel time associated with searching for, retrieving, reviewing, or copying the records. So you can get paid the actual cost to make copies, but you can't charge for staff time to look for the records. Sheriff Runyon, please see Arkansas Code Annotated 2519-101-D3-A1. So Miller County is ignorant of the public records law, or they intentionally violated it by making stuff up. I'll spare you more legal analysis on this point, but let's go back for a minute to Sheriff Phillips. He talked a little about knowing the Letterman family. The, the, let me let me tell you about the, the Lettermans. Mm-hmm. They are a tight group, and and when I say I don't, I don't mean this in the negative, but I, but they will take care of each other. From what I've heard um, from firsthand witnesses, Liz, the mother, was very abused by by the dad, Red, yes. and mm-hmm. so I can totally understand. One, she would feel like she had to to help, um, but two, she would want to help protect her son. What I really meant is that I understand that victims of abuse don't always do what we think they should. They do what they think they have to do to survive. But how bad was it really, growing up in Red Letterman's house? On the next episode of Burden, we're going to take a break from the investigation to talk about how Michael grew up. His father, Red, was a very violent man. He was all sitting around a table eating supper. Liz was sitting right here, and me, Chopper, Michael, Donna, all of us were sitting there. And I can't remember from my life what Miss Liz said, but he leaned forward and went, 
Wow, and she just flipped out in the floor. He said, now shut your effing mouth and get up here and let's eat dinner. Visit burdenpod.com for more information about this show. That's burdenpod.com. There you can contact us, sign up for our mailing list, or see photos of the people featured in the podcast. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at BurdenPod. Subscribe to Burden in your favorite podcasting app, and please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podchaser. It really helps us out. We're also on Patreon, where you can purchase a monthly subscription and access bonus content, like extended video interviews, Billy's case files, photos of the house where Billy was shot, and a collection of family photos. If you know anything about this case, please let us know. What you send in will not be shared unless we have your permission. We know there were witnesses from that night who have not wanted to talk. If you change your mind, we still want your insight. If you or someone you know needs help, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is one 800 799-7233, or text START to 88788. Stay safe, and until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.